0: I think that maybe Putin's biggest mistake from his own perspective was not going all in 2014 because he had a disunited Ukraine who would have caught the, war, the world by surprise and uh, he would have had a, probably a much easier time uh, at it, especially yeah, given the fact that it seems as if Russian military modernization after 2008 didn't do very much to change their fighting doctor. So those extra eight years of military reform probably would not have done much to move the needle.
1: This is A.J. Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, today, I am really excited to have on the show Samuel Romany for his new book, Putin's War in Ukraine, Russia's Campaign for Global Counter-Revolution. Samuel teaches politics and international relations at the University of Oxford. He's the author of Russia in Africa and an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. He contributes regularly to foreign policy, The Washington Post, the BBC World Service, Al Jazeera, and CNN. Uh, Samuel, how are you doing today?
0: Doing very well. How about you?
1: I'm great. I'm great. And we were just chatting a little bit um, before we started recording um, about some of the really interesting Russia-Ukraine books that are out right now. And um, your book uh, specifically, I thought, was... Was great for giving like a whole history um, of this this war and focusing too on on some of the more global elements to it, which don't often get talked so much. So thinking about like Syria and the Middle East and Africa and you know China, um, I thought that that it was it was that, that you had some really interesting ideas. So very excited to hear you talk a little bit about them. Um, Maybe first off, could you just start by, by telling our audience here, what is your book about, in your own words?
0: So basically, the book basically tries to explain why did Putin launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine instead of a more limited risk, a uh, predictable intervention in the Donbass? The second was, why did uh, the Russian military uh, fail so spectacularly in achieving its initial goals in to uh, produce regime change in Kiev and uh, take over the vast majority of the country territorially? And also, how did Vladimir Putin manage to survive this uh, catastrophic failure, even in the face of Western sanctions? And also, how has Russia managed to position itself on the world stage, uh, even though it's largely isolated from the West, how resilient and how durable are its partnerships uh, in the post-Soviet space and also in the collective non-West, like China, India, Iran? That's really what the book uh, seeks to cover. So the majority of the book's content Really focuses on the period from the first mobilization in the spring of uh, 2021 onto the second mobilization, followed by the invasion itself and then the war. But there are also a few chapters at the beginning which deal with some of the formative and critical developments that led up to this point. So, events like the uh, 2004 Orange Revolution in Ukraine that it created Putin's fear of liberal democracy and popular revolutions in Ukraine that later uh, built into the uh, Iran Revolution and also. Uh, unrelated developments like the Arab Spring, the Syrian Civil War, and uh, things, the NATO expansion, things that kind of shaped Putin's uh, anti-Western thinking. So it really uh, describes uh, what happened in Putin's Russia to make this war possible, and then granular analysis of what, how the war has unfolded over the first year of its duration.
1: Yeah, and the subtitle of your book um, uh, really caught my eye. So... Um, the Campaign for Global Counter-Revolution. I feel like that's like a very, I don't know, It's that sounds scary a little bit. <laughs> but explain what you mean by that title. Like, what is global counter-revolution?
0: So basically, one of my arguments, one of my key contentions in this book is that this is not just a war in Ukraine. This is not just a war to recapture the uh, former Soviet Union and uh, reconstitute uh, Russian greatness in a territorial sense. Putin's war in Ukraine is also a war against the liberal international order and also against liberal democracy more broadly. So counter-revolution means overturning the uh, outcomes of democratic popular uprisings and popular revolutions. So it's about autocracy promotion and it's about undermining the uh, impact of these uh, episodes of popular unrest. And I think a core reason why Uh, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine in February 2022 and sought to overthrow Vladimir Zelensky was because Zelensky was a product of the 2014 Euromaidan revolution. And he was representative of a democratic experiment that was underway in Ukraine that could create an alternative model of governance for post-Soviet states to what was being offered inside uh, Russia with Putin's Russia. So an alternative, successful, democratic model. And this is something that was quite uh, alarming and scary for Vladimir Putin and something that he could not tolerate on his doorstep. So it's something that he had to overturn and had to change and had to prevent. And when you look at the entire history of Putin's Russia, you see a consistent trend of escalating responses to popular unrest and popular revolutions, even when Putin's regime has appeared to be getting more and more authoritarian, more and more secure. So in the early 2000s, the Bulldozer Revolution in Serbia, the Rose Revolution in Georgia, the 2004 Revolution in Ukraine were greeted with frustration frustration but uh, little more than rhetorical criticisms and small-scale election meddling. Then we started seeing uh, Vladimir Putin seek to undo the impacts of those revolutions. So uh, in, invading South Ossetia in Georgia in 2008, which threatened uh, the Saakashvili government's uh, hold on key parts of its territory. And then engaging in various forms of economic warfare against uh, Yushchenko's Ukraine in the hopes of undoing the, uh, the Orange Revolution. And then we saw the Arab Spring come in and the 2012 protests in Moscow and Bolotnaya Square, making him even more fearful of these episodes of unrest, followed by the the revolution in Euromaidan in Ukraine, which led to the invasion of of Crimea and Donbass, and then the uh, revolution in Syria, which led to Russia sending fighter jets alongside Iranian forces to help keep Bashar al-Assad in power. And then finally, the 2020 unrest in Belarus, where Russia did in, use a variety of tactics to prop up Alexander Lukashenko and prevent uh, the demise of his uh, closest ally and his near-neighbor, in, in Autocrat, who was kind of following a similar model of governance. So as you can see, over the course of 20 years, you see a consistent thread of opposition to popular unrest and popular revolutions, and also drastic escalation in means of resisting them, from criticizing them to delegitimizing them to limited military interventions to full-scale invasions like we're seeing now in, in Ukraine. And finally, it's interesting because I think the counter-revolution represents uh, Russia's uh, conservative values, Russia's illiberal values, and it's a way of uniting the Russian people around a common set of ideas and creating a new contemporary Russian foreign policy identity. Because after the collapse of communism, after the collapse of the Soviet Union's uh, superpower status, Russia was left rudderless. It didn't really have a sense of purpose as a country. It really didn't know what it stood for on the world stage. Was it a part of the West? Was it a part of the East? Was it something else entirely? Was it a different Orthodox civilization? It didn't really know who it was. And it was often quoted in the 1990s that even our subregions, like the Chechens, and the republics that we ruled over, like the Kazakhs, have a clearer sense of who they are than we do. And counter-revolution, opposing popular uprisings, opposing liberal democracy, opposing these liberal values, allowed Vladimir Putin to unite large ways around, of the Russian people around anti-Westernism, illiberalism, and his variant of conservatism. And that, I think, is crucial for his regime security and also for uh, convincing the Russians that they have a, a, a place in the world and something that they're standing for on the world stage. And finally, there's a long history here. This narrative of popular revolutions being fake, of popular revolutions being uh, conduits or vehicles. For the expansion of uh, malign and nefarious Western influence are very, very similar to the narratives that Russians have been hearing for about 50 or 60 years. From the 1953 unrest in East Germany to the 1956 unrest in Hungary, 1968 in Czechoslovakia, 1993 constitutional crisis in Russia, revolutions and protests were equated with fascism. They were equated with uh, Nazi infiltration. When the Soviets went into Hungary, they thought they, they were told, the Soviet troops were told they were fighting Nazis in Hungary just like the same way the current Russian troops are being told that they're fighting Nazis inside Ukraine. And uh, this image of, the, you know, of Western-backed instability and revolutions being a, 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 a conduit or a vehicle for values that are alien to Russia's is something that can resonate from people who grew up under Putin's Russia or to people who grew up in the Second World War. All generations are united here. And that's why I think counter-revolution and this overturning of Euromaidan and this pursuit of regime change in Ukraine was so essential and so central to Putin's uh, decision to invade. Yeah. And, you know,
1: that's, that's so interesting. And I was, I mean, since we're, we're talking about, you know, global counter-revolution, I was going to ask you about this later in the interview, but I think if, if you would have asked, I mean, if you would have asked me, I'm not an expert, but I think if you would have asked most people before the Invasion of Ukraine, I think there probably was there would be consensus that Russia was meddling in the affairs of a lot of countries in the West, whether that's you know 2016 election uh, interference or that's poisoning dissidents in the UK or, or targeting journalists. Um, and you know, I'm curious now that that Russia has invaded Ukraine, do you think they still have that that kind of global reach that? Uh, that, pe- that the West was very fearful of before their invasion. Do you think they still have those capabilities?
0: Well, I mean, I think that they certainly have the ability to uh, continue to carry out uh, election interference, I think, and, and uh, affect the outcomes in Western countries. I mean, obviously, some of their tools have been stripped because of the invasion of Ukraine. I think the closure of RT and Sputnik is a big loss for them in terms of being able to amplify messages that are favorable to them we should also not underestimate the uh, number of surrogates that they still manage to have, particularly on the far left and the far right of the political spectrum, especially in continental Europe. So people who are opposed to uh, the, uh, the economic consequences of this war and believe that sanctions on Russia are leading to higher energy prices, higher food prices, there's a slice of the population for whom that narrative would resonate and those people are pushing for a political settlement. But the problem is, Russia's uh, ability to uh, influence outcomes inside Western countries is limited now by its uh, limited popularity and limited appeal. I mean, there was a new Pew Research Survey. The highest level of support for Russia that was observed in continental Europe or in the entire collective West, as the Russians like to call it, was Greece, 32%. Almost every single country has got overwhelmingly uh, the, the unfavorable images of Russia. And now the Russian media outlets are gone. So they have to rely on kind of lone wolf surrogates to kind of promote their messaging and promote their narratives. And those surrogates are largely clustered on the far left and the far right of the political spectrum in most countries. Of course, there are some elements of that becoming a bit more mainstream. So maybe Trump and DeSantis in the United States a little bit, and also people like Orban in Hungary, maybe taking some of the narratives that they're pushing and bringing them into more of the po- into the popular domain or Marine Le Pen in France. But in general, it, Russia's ability to influence is largely radicalizing those who are already uh, radicalized and are already kind of suspicious of the establishment and the institutions and the system, and just fanning the flames and making it worse. Elsewhere, outside the West, however, uh, I think that Russia's got uh, a greater ability to kind of be able to influence outcomes and engage in political interference, because I don't think that Prigozhin's uh, machinery, the wagner Group's machinery, is necessarily going away. His media outlets and his uh, political technologists have been shuttered, but RT chief Margarita Simonian says they're the best in the business, and they want to hire them. Also, Russian diplomats are being expelled from Europe. Many of those are spies, and uh, and who are experienced in various tactics of political interference and espionage. Where are they going to go? They're not off the payroll of the Kremlin. They're going to be stacking and staffing the embassies in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, in the Indo-Pacific region. And we're seeing an expansion of Russia's media presence in those regions as well. Everywhere from RT uh, uh, landing in South Africa or in Serbia. Or uh, Sputnik uh, francophone channels gaining uh, massive ground in West Africa from Tunisia, crowding on French outlets, and also Chinese uh, outlets reinforcing Russian disinformation in places where Russia can't reach. I think that Russia's information warfare, their ability to meddle in other countries' affairs, promote autocracy in the global south is alive and well, and maybe even stronger as a result of this war. So as you can see, it's a mixed picture. I mean, I think that they're able to more effectively radicalize the extremes in the West, but not necessarily the mainstream opinion. But in the global South, they are able to run riot. And I think they are serious, as serious rapidly, uh to anybody who believes in liberal democracy.
1: Yeah. And um, I think one thing that I, I found was interesting this week, um, thinking about Prigozian, is a, a, as we're recording this this week, there was a, a video of him that came out where he's like, you know, all right, you know. <laughs> Wagner mercenaries, like we're pulling out of Ukraine and we're going to Africa. And I'm like, what? I didn't, I didn't realize that Russia, that Africa was so strategically important uh, to, to Russia Um, as somebody who's written a book about, you know, Russia in Africa, talk a little bit about that, uh, that importance that in the global South, as you call it, um, that, that Russia is, is, is putting on that region.
0: So yeah, it's great that we talk about this right now because next week is going to be the uh, Russia-Africa summit in St. Petersburg, where, where is expecting dozens of African leaders to be in attendance and hoping that the aftermath of the scrapping the Black Sea Rain export deal and effectively taking measures to starve uh, the poorest people in Africa is not going to lead to African countries turning on Russia. And oddly enough, so far that hasn't seemed to happen. Nobody believes really even is, is talking very much. But yeah, it's interesting uh, uh, that Jevgeny Prigozhin would be trying to beef up and strengthen Wagner's presence in Africa because he knows that Wagner is indispensable over there for Russia's influence and in its operations. This can't easily be dislodged. Their their forces are guarding Libya's vital oil ports. They're guarding the main gold mines in Sudan. They're serving as bodyguards for the president of Central African Republic. They're fighting in shared military bases in Mali against counterterrorism. And you can't uh, change those personnel overnight without severely disrupting counterterrorism operations and risking oil and gold and other... Uh, vital mineral reserves that bring hard currencies to the Kremlin, falling into hostile hands. So, Prigozhin is fairly smug about his position in Africa and fairly confident that he's going to be able to continue to exert influence, and I think he's going to still try to market his services to other countries as well. We've already been seeing the Russians try to market their services more aggressively in coastal West Africa, and also some of the countries surrounding Central African Republic, particularly both Congos and Cameroon. How, how far they'll be able to go, given now the doubts about Wagner and the Russian state, uh, having this falling out, it's unclear, but uh, they're definitely going to be trying to have an interest uh, over there. And the reason why Putin needs to tolerate Prigozhin in Africa, and Africa is important for him, is several fold. First of all, is a practical consideration. Obviously, Russia is shorn of uh, its Western partners, and it needs to really rebalance its foreign policy towards the non-West. One of the uh, stated goals of the Russian invasion of Ukraine if you listen to Dmitry Medvedev or Sergei Lavrov or any of the leading Russian officials, is that we're trying to create a more equitable global order. We're trying to create a multipolar world order. And multipolarity means embracing the other poles of the international system that are not the United States and Europe. So embracing China, India, Africa, Brazil, uh, the, uh, the Persian Gulf monarchies, uh, Iran, you get the picture, right? A uh, Various range of regional and uh, great and aspiring great powers in the collective non-West that Russia needs to uh, strengthen its uh, partnerships with. The second thing, obviously, is that Africa remains a fairly lucrative, if small, market for some of the uh, extractives that, uh, that that Russia can invest in. Like you know, Russian uh, mining companies have considerable presences there. So everything from Rosatom, nuclear energy, to uh, El Rosa Diamond, uh, Roussel for bauxite and aluminum, uh, then also of course the energy companies like Gazprom and uh, and Lukoil and others. And also Russia's traditionally been the largest arms supplier. To Africa, though that may be called into question because of doubts about the efficacy of Russian military technology and the tighter secondary sanctions risks that we're seeing. So that's why Egypt, for example, didn't buy the Su-35s, and Iran had to uh, purchase them, and they're still working all that up. And the third thing, obviously, is symbolic for Russia, because the Soviet Union had a history of superpower status in Africa. Africa was the flagship theater of their decolonization, their resistance to imperialism, and Russia frames its now, its current influence in Africa in exactly the same terms. Like, it is fighting Western neocolonialism. It's fighting French neocolonialism in, in West Africa, claiming the French are not fighting terrorists. They're just seizing mines. right? They're fighting uh, American uh, interference. And uh, backing people like Asimi Goida is like the same way the Soviet Union tried to make uh, overtures towards African liberation heroes like Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, right? Goida is the military junta dictator in Mali for those who are not following this uh, so closely. So, as you can see, that Africa was an integral part of uh, the Soviet Union's image as an anti-imperial, anti-Western power, and uh, superpower status there was important for that. And now, as as Russia sees itself as the inheritor of many of the uh, elements of Soviet greatness, without the Marxist-Leninist ideology, but still the image of of greatness and and, and superpower status that it wants to inherit, it sees influence in Africa as a natural continuity. So it's about status, it's about extractives, and it's about multipolarity.
1: Yeah, well, you know, thinking about um, Putin's goal to um, to reclaim the same kind of influence that the Soviet Union had, you know, maybe let's let's talk about a, a big question from your book, which um, could be a, a hard question maybe to answer um, because you have taken several hundred pages to write about it um yeah. but wh- why do you think that uh that putin opted for uh a full-scale invasion of ukraine rather than just continuing his his small-scale intervention in the donbass
0: well there were several calculations that were at play over here i think the first was uh, underestimation of both uh, ukrainian and uh western uh, resolve so he was being basically reading the Kool-Aid and taking it all in. He basically was believing that the large portions of the Ukrainian population, especially those who were ethnic Russian or even Russian language speakers, not even ethnically Russians, would uh, turn and support Russia and greet Russia as liberators. So the narrative for eight years leading up to the July 2022 invasion, so after Maidan, was that uh, the government in Kiev was illegally uh, installed. It was legally installed by the United States and it was radicalized and it was extremist, right? It was uh, g- dominated uh, and uh, effectively Zelensky was being held hostage by Nazi and fascist battalions. And those Nazi battalions and fascist battalions and uh, Zelensky by extension were inherently Russophobic yeah. and were trying to extinguish Russian culture, Russian language, and the Russian ethnicity uh, from Ukraine to the point in which they came up with this idea that ethnic Russians in Donbass were actually being victims of genocide. And While this seems like an alternate reality, it's something that was repeated in the Russian media day in and day out for eight years, and it seemed to infiltrate the views of some of Putin's closest advisors, like the hawkish national security advisor Nikolai Patrushev, or uh, the head of the FSB, Alexander Bortnikov, or Dmitry Medvedev, or many of these other figures who he was listening to in the days and months leading up to the invasion almost exclusively because he was hiding his plans from everyone else. So this group thing... Uh, really, I think, influenced Vladimir Putin to believe that large numbers of Ukrainians would be on side. At the very least, you'd have the support of the second largest political party inside Ukraine, which is Viktor Medvedchuk's uh, opposition bloc. And at most, you'd have grassroots uh, local resistance that he'd be able to tap in on and be able to move uh, forward. Of course, this was a, a contradiction of modern history because Russia had exactly the same set of assumptions in 2014 and 2015, and they were so confident in those assumptions that they didn't even declare war. They didn't even uh, officially send their own ground troops. They just sent separatists and proxies to uh, take over, and they hoped that they would be able to go all the way from Crimea to uh, Kharkiv to Odessa and create Novorossiya, one-third of the country being liberated. They did take over Crimea. They did succeed in Donetsk and Luhansk because of the chaos that followed Yanukovych's leadership. But as soon as Ukraine, even when it lacked neoclass weaponry, even when it was demoralized by years of underfunding of its military under Yanukovych, and was divided as a society, was able to even uh, create some kind of resistance. Russia was unable to advance. And those ethnic Russians and those Russian speakers fought on the side of the Ukrainians, not on the side of Russia. But because of the groupthink and because of these eight years of propaganda, because of Putin's reliance on a very small, closed circle of advisors, he had this alternate reality in his head that large portions of Ukrainians were greeted as liberators. And that extended from Putin down to the uh, 18-year-old Russian conscripts on the ground who were shocked that they were being spat on and and assaulted when they landed in Ukrainian territory because they told their mothers they thought we were coming here to liberate uh, people who were suffering under Nazi oppression. So that's kind of one arc of it. The second was obviously the underestimation of the West, and that was somewhat more rational because Western countries had always uh, talked a big game but underperformed when it came to countering Russian aggression in the past. Russia invaded uh, Georgia in 2008. And there were no sanctions that were imposed or no divestment from uh, Russian energy inside the West. Russia carried out uh, atrocities like some of the very similar kind that we're seeing in Ukraine and Chechnya, including the use of filtration camps and the, uh, you, uh, the mass uh, leveling of cities, like uh, think about Bakhmut and think about Mariupol and go back to Grozny. And there were, wasn't even more than just a mere slap on the wrist. There was talk about uh, engaging with Russia and bringing Russia into the, uh, and into the collective West. They carry out uh, war crimes uh, with fighter jets and bomb schools and hospitals in Syria. No sanctions. They annex Crimea. A small number of elites get sanctioned, and Germany expands its dependence on Russian gas by signing Nord Stream 2 just months later. So Vladimir Putin believed that the same thing would happen again, uh, and the Western response would be just as feckless. The Western societies would be divided between the political extremes, and the, uh, uh, the far left and the far right, and uh, populist economic sentiments would deter serious sanctions. And uh, also, the West would not supply large-scale military technology to Ukraine because they'd be able to use a nuclear weapons card to, uh, to scare and thwart any movement of artillery, fighter jets, anything of any substance. So they figured that they were going to be able to succeed, and they were fighting against a disunited Ukrainian army that, and a Ukrainian society that had substantial support for them. So that was one big decision why he believed that the invasion of Ukraine would be something that was low cost and uh, very high reward and was almost a guarantee to succeed, and you see that because Russia only planned for supply lines of two to three days uh, on many of their uh, early interventions in uh, into Kiev, and troops just ran out of cold weather gear, they ran out of food, they ran out of things that they should never have run out of if they had planned an intervention properly. And they had only one uh, supply station for the U.S. military would have three to five, and the Russia puts one because they don't think they need them, right? So that's just uh, an interesting uh, contradiction and in point. Another thing, I think, was that Vladimir Putin wanted a legacy-defining achievement, I think. And uh, undoing the Euromaidan revolution, kind of reuniting the uh, core p- parts of the Russian uh, empire, as he saw it, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, under a common destiny and a common set of leaders. So having somebody like Medvedch Yanukovych in Ukraine, Lukashenko in Belarus, Putin in Russia, all autocratic, uh, 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 anti-Western, uh, un- kind of a united... Uh, Conservative axis here would be kind of his uh, defining legacy, and that's kind of what I think he saw this uh, this is this is being because in the first decade of his uh, time in power, it was stabilization of the country after the 1990s and diffusing the tension separatism threat and economic growth. The second decade, it was rec- reclaiming Crimea and rebuilding the Russian military. In his third and what may well be his final decade in office, it would be uh, reuniting the Russian world. So I think that that was the other reason why he wanted to go big and go all in, and he thought the costs were limited, and he ended up being extremely wrong on all fronts. Wow,
1: well, you've uh, you actually summarized uh, several hundred pages uh, very succinctly there, so thank you for that. A couple of uh, things that that I think are really interesting that you just said, um, one is, uh, is Putin's isolation. Um, But actually, first, I want to ask you about what you, when you were talking about the West and Crimea, um, how much of a mistake do you think it was in 2014 that Putin seemed to receive no, hardly any consequences for his invasion of Crimea from the global stage?
0: Well, I think that that was very significant, I think. And it really kind of uh, created a bit of a false picture of what might happen later on. And there was only one uh, military uh, colonist, uh, Mikhail Karyanok, the retired colonel, who wrote an article in Gazette, who warned that the West would be much more uh, that supportive of Ukraine this time around, because Ukraine had been integrated much more into NATO structures from drills in the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea than it was then. So uh, he uh, assumed that, yeah, there was going to be no uh, major Western support for Ukraine. No Western country gave lethal arms to Ukraine. Lithuania was the first. It was years later. Trump authorized the javelins uh, in 2019 to, to come to Ukraine. Obama didn't give any kind of uh, uh, military assistance at the time. So there was a history of the West not backing Ukraine and also the West not sanctioning Russia anywhere near severely enough. Because in 2014, they were the, the, uh, the, the official rhetoric, when I was talking to people in Moscow, from uh, advisors like Surya Karaganov, was they were shocked that Germany even sanctioned Russia at all. So they were shocked that some sanctions were there. But privately... They actually were expecting sanctions to get much more severe than they actually were. Alexei Kudrin, one of the key economic advisors, actually drew up a plan for what Russia would do in the event of Russia being kicked out of SWIFT in the summer of 2014. Or was, even if uh, one country did this, like Britain, for example, decided to do it in the aftermath of, uh, of Brexit, if they just did it all by themselves, what, what would that be? And they already were concluding that you know they can try to figure out ways to keep GDP declined to less than 5%. And they were kind of coming up with strategies for this. So- the Russians uh, had a lot of bravado and a lot of confidence that you see the West is going to do nothing because they need us. But privately, even they, I think, were surprised by the weakness of the uh, Western response. And that just encouraged them to go further and Putin to kind of push the boundaries as far as possible. So I think that that was a very serious blow and combined on the heels of that with a non-reaction to what they just did in Syria. I think that that was a gateway to moving this forward. And finally, I think the very fact that, you know, the uh, the 2016 interference in the US elections As egregious as they may have been As an attack on liberal democracy uh, God did lead to sanctions It did lead to so much coverage But Russia's international ventures Were barely uh, greeted with a slap on the wrist Led uh, Western policy, Russian policymakers to conclude That Russia was becoming an issue of domestic politics And not really necessarily being viewed In national security threat terms So if the Russians attacked Ukraine But uh, didn't, didn't necessarily combine that With some kind of hybrid attacks on the, On the United States the U.S. response to be very limited. I think that that over, overemphasis and over-dramatization to some extent of attacks on the, on the home front and lack of dealing in a similar way or in a more severe way with attacks abroad kind of convinced Russia to escalate in the manner that they did too. That's another narrative I was hearing in the Kremlin between 2014 and 2020. So I wanted to bring that up.
1: Yeah, well, um, I mean, very famously, I think in like the 2012 U.S. elections, um, the the candidates were, were speaking about uh, Russia as a regional power and yeah. very much discounting like their influence uh, around the globe. Uh, this might be kind of a hard situation for us to imagine, but I'm curious if this if the war right now uh, was being fought in 2014, how do you think that would be different?
0: That would have been interesting. I think that first of all, Ukraine would have been in a much weaker position than it was right now. Because the Ukraine's intelligence services were severely compromised by uh, collusion and cooperation with the, uh, r- r- with the Russian security services. So much so that when the Russian forces went into Crimea, the, uh, there was actually bases and installations where the people just fled. And they even left their computers and their IT and all kinds of valuable information for the Russians to pick up and to collect. And there were also a lot of very active uh, uh, collaborators who would have helped and steered it from the ground. So Yanukovych probably would have retreated to the east and then probably stayed there, and uh, Medvedchuk would have been uh, doing his work in terms of facilitating and moving this. There were even uh, corrupt dealings between Medvedchuk, uh, the, which is Russia's preferred successor in Ukraine, and Putin is the uh, godfather of his daughter, at, uh, and uh, Poroshenko, which were later revealed on, uh, onward. So Russia had a much greater ability to exercise uh, soft power, spread disinformation, use local surrogates, corrupt uh, uh, even officials who were against Russia's side, and create confusion and create chaos. And uh, also the Ukrainian military lacked NATO class equipment, They've been severely hollowed out in the previous two decades. And uh, there were a uh, high, high rate of uh, defections from the intelligence services, as I just noted. And I think that that would have meant that the Russians would have gained substantially more territory before the West would have been able to have kicked in with uh, weapons deliveries. And we probably would have looked at Russia probably retaking uh, maybe even even over Russia, and then the West may have finally only been able to have woken up when Kiev itself was under threat. And then we would have seen a protracted and long war, where which may have ended in very well in some kind of a frozen conflict, because it may have been just too much territory for the Ukrainians to dislodge from Russia at one time. So I think that maybe Putin's biggest mistake from his own perspective was not going all in in 2014, because he had a disunited Ukraine who would have caught the, the world by surprise, and uh, he would have had a... Probably a much easier time uh, at it, especially yeah, given the fact that it seems as if Russian military modernization after two thousand and eight didn't do very much to change their fighting doctrine. So those extra eight years of military reform probably would not have been, done much to move the needle.
1: That's very interesting. Um, well, I'm 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 curious about something else that you had mentioned in regards to to Putin's isolation. So during the this became very apparent to everybody during the pandemic, when you would see images of Vladimir Putin, you know, he was at the long table and he was physically isolated from everybody. Um, But as you noted, you know, he's really just had like a small group of people that, you know, his inner circle um, that, that he, he relies on. And so he has been very isolated um, in terms of the knowledge that he receives. I'm curious how isolated is he still given what's gone on with like the Prigozhin mutiny, given that the war, I think from any angle, it, it's not going well and it's not what he expected. Um, yeah. How isolated does he remain?
0: So what happened was, I think that he had a tendency to make decisions of these kind of military interventions with a very small circle of leaders. And the same exact decision-making process was used in the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Even Sergei Lavrov was not in the room when that decision was made by all the accounts of Experts I interviewed inside Russia and also in the U.S. who are familiar with Russian decision making, and he, I think, in, in this this invasion too, he was caught off guard because Lavrov the previous day was saying that the invasion was not going to happen, and then he had to come with his UN team and come up with some kind of Article 51 uh, national self-defense case to justify uh, the the invasion. And it seems like a bit of a scattershot thing, so it's very likely that Vladimir Putin in both of these interventions merely consulted with the, uh, his national security team and the, uh, F- the head of the FSB, and maybe uh, some, uh, the, some people in the top of the military, top brass, like Shogu and Gerasimov. I would say that Patrushev, for example, from the national security team, may have been an influencer on policy and steering him in this direction, whereas Shogu was merely an implementer and a passive implementer. So that's kind of how it would have looked like. So the number of influencers, even in that group of five or six, may have only been two or three. So that just gives you a sense of how close circle these decisions are made on issues like the war in Ukraine. Um, I don't think that necessarily extends, though, to every single issue. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. One of the things I know, for example, in Russian Africa, in the other book, is a striking degree to which decision-making there is actually coming from the bottom up. It's coming from state and companies. It's coming from individuals like Prigozhin. It's coming from Duma members and Federation Council members and advisors to the president. Vladimir Putin just just, just takes the agenda in broad terms and does the trips and does the things and kind of lets these guys run it and just uh, gives a thumbs up. So I wouldn't say that he was always isolated uh, and the COVID isolation was just extending to every aspect of policy. It's just that he keeps a very, very high degree of paranoia and secrecy about these highest level national security issues. And he wants to uh, use this to these issues, maybe to kind of uh, unite the bureaucracy, pit people against each other. Maybe that's probably why he's doing that because it doesn't seem to make much operational sense not to get as wide a range of opinions as possible on the same thing. So I think it's less the COVID isolation, but more how he just uh, has a pattern of conducting himself trying to put the most high level security uh, issues that could lead to profound changes in Russian society. And, uh, potentially pose threats and opportunities for regime consolidation being determined by a small group of like-minded advisors and the rest of policy being uh, having other figures. I think that as the war has proceeded, he has gotten much more hands-on and on the ground in terms of figuring out what's happening. There's lots of reports, for example, that Vladimir Putin talks regularly to generals and even uh, levels below general to military figures to find out what's happening on the front lines without showing you and Gerizimov's consent. He's actively involved, of course, in the regular uh, rotations that we're seeing in the southern, central, and other military districts, and personnel changes that we keep seeing on the ground because he's frustrated with how they're performing and he keeps trying to, to reassign them. And he's outsourced uh, large amounts of domestic policy, I think especially economic policy, to his prime minister, Mikhail Mashiston. So he's capable of delegation, he's capable of consultation. It's not, it's not about a state of mind, it's just about how he wants to uh micromanage and also is a bit paranoid when it comes when he's handling these very very yeah high level security issues and high risk uh, interventions and ventures
1: yeah, well, thinking about his 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 kind of close circle of advisors and thinking about shoigu and and durasimov and um the Prigozhin mutiny, which was very directed at at their failures, not putin's failures yeah. at their failures, I'm curious. How um, do they obviously remain in their jobs and they obviously remain in Putin's circle? Um, How how important are both of them individually to Putin? And I guess, you know, how how is Putin receiving the criticism against them and and what actions does he take in, in response to that?
0: So uh, it was interesting because Prigozhin's uh, speech, which I think is very, very important to understand the mutiny, even more important than some of the uh, gesticulations that he did before, like talking about how the Russian defense minister were attacking his forces. That speech is very revealing of what his uh, grievances towards the Russian military leadership were. And his argument was basically that Sergei Shoigu was uh, corrupt. He was kind of pursuing his own uh, ambitions and basically effectively squandering Russia's military resources and reforms to probably enrich himself. And also he was working in conjunction with oligarchs whose sole purpose was to uh, plunder Ukraine, right? And uh, Putin was kind of seen as a figure who was uh, incompetent and uh, unable to uh, deal with or manage what the people underneath them were doing. Like you and the oligarchs were planning all this, and they were able to, to, to pull wool over his eyes, deceive him, and Putin did, didn't stop it. So they, Putin was deceived into believing that the people of Donbass were experiencing a genocide, that NATO was about to expand under Russia's borders, and that Ukraine was going to be used as a launch pad to attack Russia itself. All these type of things. So Prigozhin's uh, and the Wagner Group mutiny was, yes, first and foremost, aimed at changing the Russian military leadership. And I have doubts as to whether he actually intended to uh, overthrow Vladimir Putin on the day or rather get try to get to the gates of Moscow and uh, blackmail Putin almost into firing these figures and replacing them with people like the disappeared general, Sergei and or Teplinsky, uh, who was rumored to replace Gerasimov and then that, that, that rumor died down and people like that. So, But also he was taking a direct aim at, at Putin's leadership and also Putin's ability to manage his, his subordinates. I think that may have been why that was a, a real red line for him, right? Like, uh, in terms of his a future inside Putin's inner circle, more so than some of the other uh, dramatics that he had carried out before, like standing in front of the corpses and crying about munitions and accusing the defense ministry of treason and, and other stuff that he had done, because he was attacking Putin himself there. I think mean, that's an important thing to bring up. I think that with regards to Shoigu and Jaroslav, I think that Shoigu has uh, been long-term uh, position in the role. He's been there since 2012. He uh, did uh, manage the interventions in Ukraine, also Syria. To, to some degree, though, I think the actual credit for the successes were probably the generals on the ground, like Dornikov and to some extent, largely Sergei Surabekin, and their coordination with Assad, Iran, and Hezbollah. He was largely just overseeing uh, personnel and uh, and equipment and things like that. He's an minister of emergencies uh, before that. He doesn't have a military background. He's not especially respected by the military top brass, by veterans, by the FSB, or by, for that matter, Putin, by somebody who runs the military in administratively efficient enough way, and uh, even if he's not strategically uh, uh, sound, and uh, even though he's uh, got corruption and vulnerabilities, he's not going to uh, have ambitions to replace Putin and try to overthrow him and try to disrupt the apple cart and disrupt the system. He, by keeping Shoigu in power, the military is effectively quote, coup-proofed. So that's probably why I think that uh, Shoigu has stayed in place and Shoigu is unlikely to be removed in the near future. Gerasimov is a slightly different uh, kettle of fish, because Gerasimov actually was a contributor to Russia's military doctrines and military reforms. There's two figures, right? There's Suryukov, the first defense minister before Shoigu, who was seen as too much willing to challenge authority, which is why Shoigu, who was more pliable, was put in. And Gerasimov, who came up with their hybrid war doctrine. So their doctrine of, you know, cyber warfare, their doctrine of uh, using proxies and surrogates, information warfare. And uh, that doctrine has proven to be ineffective in Ukraine because they couldn't influence Ukrainian public opinion to be pro-Russian. They haven't carried out any meaningful cyber attacks. And their uh, ability to use uh, proxies and surrogates like the uh, Luhansk and Donetsk militias or Chechen Katarovsky have been uh, marred by chaos and infighting and, and, and a lot of problems. But Gerasimov is uh, the, the antidote at this point to the ultra-nationalists who are posing a threat to his regime. Surevkin was clearly demoted and replaced by him to be running the forces in Ukraine. So I don't think that Putin for the near future will dismiss him because doing so would be kind of acknowledging that the ultranationalists were right and would give them some oxygen. Just today, one of the biggest ultranationalist critics of, uh, of Putin, Igor Gherkin, was just a tank. So that's a sign that he's really trying to crack down on that block and not try to empower them. So of the two, I think Gerasimov was more of a contributor to the failed war and therefore, he's more vulnerable to being dismissed than Shoigu. But he's not likely to be dismissed in the current climate either, because of the ultranationalist threat and the fact that Russia just wants to clamp down on these people and not uh, give them concessions.
1: Yeah, and that's that's very interesting um, that what you say, because even if even if Putin wanted to uh, dismiss Gerasimov or Shoigu, to do that would be almost like an admission of his own failure. It would make him look weak, uh, like he could not manage them. Um, So that that is very interesting. Um, I want to pivot a little bit here and talk about um, Syria, which has been brought up uh, a few times. What is the relationship like right now between Russia and Syria?
0: Well, I think that Russia largely achieved its major objectives in Syria, as they were defined when they intervened in 2015. So I was in Moscow when the intervention in Syria began, and they framed their operation in very much uh, Bush doctrine-type terms. We have to uh, expel ISIS from Syria. We have to fight the terrorists before the terrorists end up in, uh, in the North Caucasus, right? So it's like we, have, like we have to attack Iraq before the WMDs end up in the streets of our cities. It's the same kind of analogy, almost the same rhetoric and such an irony given how much Vladimir Putin has spent the past uh, 20 years attacking U.S. unilateralism and U.S. uh, military interventions. But that was what they they set the goal to be. Obviously, they played a relatively minimal role in the actual defeat of ISIS because 92 to 94% of their strikes were targeted and focused on uh, various Syrian opposition groups and also some affiliated to Al-Qaeda like Jabhat al-Nusra, but also many who were just grassroots uh, 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 opposition groups. And the U.S. did the heavy lifting in terms of the fight against ISIS. So ISIS, is, ISIS has been defeated in Syria for the most part, which is good for, for him. And also, uh, Assad has managed to take control over the integral parts of the country. He's managed to take uh, Damas- secure Damascus, take over Aleppo, take over Palmyra and some other surrounding cities, and uh, effectively just some pockets of it live in the Kurdish areas are all that are left. So Russia does not need to really do much in Syria these days, aside from just giving Assad the degree of air support and the degree of naval support and uh, the personnel on the ground for training and logistics to make sure Assad keeps what he has. So that's why uh, the frequency of airstrikes in Syria after the war in Ukraine began reached an all time low. And that's why, you know, after the Moscow cruiser was sunk, there wasn't that much disruption to Russia's intervention in Syria, like some predicted, because it doesn't need those kind of heavy equipments anymore to function and to develop. In the longer term, I think that Russia is going to play a wait-and-see approach and be very patient in Syria, because it, Iran, and uh, Damascus are all under international sanctions. So the question is, who gets the sanctions lifted first? Will countries like the UAE, who have been lobbying for Caesar Act sanctions in Syria to be lifted to rebuild the country, get some kind of a uh, concession on Syria? Uh, will there be a JCPOA that brings uh, uh, Iran to see its sanctions lifted? Or will there be some kind of a ceasefire or a deal with uh, Russia or something that leads to Russia seeing some, some, some more freedom to maneuver and to invest? And uh, right now, neither of those three scenarios are very likely, so they can't really engage in the reconstruction process. But when one of those or multiple of those scenarios kick in, they want to make sure that they outflank Iran and that they're first uh, in line for the oil, the petrochemicals and the other uh, uh, areas of the Syrian economy where their companies have quietly been making outreaches and deals in the event that that does happen. And the second thing I think they want is to maintain a long-term military presence in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East, in Syria. And that means modernizing their bases in Tartus and Khmermim and making sure they keep them for a minimum of of 50 years. So I think that that's really what their end game is in Syria. And uh, also they've achieved something else when they've gotten Syria into the Arab League. And they've managed to de-escalate somewhat Syria's, uh, tensions with Turkey, even though the Turkish military presence on the border remains. So they've achieved most of what they want. The next steps are reconstruction and staying there uh, for the remainder of this uh, half century or maybe a century.
1: I'm curious um, if there's anything in the reverse direction. So Iran is... Um supplying their their drones to the russians to use in ukraine what is syria supplying anything to the russians to use in ukraine whether that's manpower or or equipment or anything
0: no there's really no evidence of that there were rumors that syria would supply barrel bombs that it used to uh russia and that's still a possibility given the fact that the u.s is giving ukraine costume munitions but uh that that never really uh, got off the ground and there were also rumors that Syria was going to actually maybe even send foreign fighters or ground forces or the Russians were trying to it, it, uh, gin, gin up enthusiasm for that. There was that famous uh, uh, rally in Damascus University where Syrian students were wearing uh, the flag colors of the Syrian Arab Republic flag formed a Z, And there were some gestures like this to try to encourage and inspire support for the war in Ukraine. But the vast majority of the Syrian people see themselves, particularly the Syrian Sunnis, and, and also the Syrian Kurds see themselves as being victims of Russian aggression, directly or indirectly. Uh, and they view uh, basically in Syria, and they, and they have a lot of solidarity with Ukraine. There's plenty of Syrian opposition fighters who are uh, wearing Ukrainian flags, many more of them than uh, uh, Syrian pro-government people carrying zets. So I think in general, there's not much enthusiasm for, uh, for bringing forces uh, into, into Russia. I don't think that the barrel bombs are going to be transferred Yeah, also to Russia, even if they might prove to be useful, however brutal they may be for some of Russia's attacks on Ukrainian cities.
1: And you bring up um, uh, cluster bombs. Um, Do you think that 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 is a mistake to supply cluster bombs from the U.S. to to Ukraine?
0: Well, I mean, I think that it's 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 a complicated question, a complicated situation. I think that it's something that the U.S. would rather not have done, I think. I think given the fact that it's the only weapon shipment in modern times that's really polarized and divided the NATO alliance. Because so many countries in NATO have signed on to the uh, opposition to uh, the ban on cluster munitions. So something they would have rather not done, but there were some strategic reasons why it may have been a necessary move. Number one, Russia has been using cluster munitions uh, on the front lines. And Ukraine does have its stocks of Soviet-era cluster munitions as it's used to. So it would be using some of them uh, probably regardless, and the Russians have, have used them. So when Russia says that they will threaten to use more of them, they may use more of them, but they were, in the first uh, month of the war, there were 24 instances of them using uh, cluster munitions. and They were trying to use them when they were trying to advance in multiple directions on uh, Kiev, on Kharkiv, uh, in Donbass. The second thing is that Ukraine's counteroffensive offensive right now is moving at a relatively slow pace. And that's because of the uh, intensity of Russia's fortifications. Uh, the fact that Russian forces have gotten more sophisticated in terms of rebuffing Ukrainian forces, they can use ATAGMs, for example, and uh, and, uh attack helicopters and, and uh, take advantage of the Ukrainians getting stuck in the mud in the fortifications to att- attack and disperse units. They're, they've been more effective at jamming uh, HIMARS and other systems, and they've been able to adapt to it. They're fighting alongside a single one or two axes of advance, with more of a traditional Soviet Russian doctrine, instead of just the kind of chaos that we saw during the early days of the war. And they got more people; they got 300,000 conscripts brought in, uh, plus now another 128,000, I think, brought in, in the first half of this year. So they don't have the manpower shortages that they had before, even with Wagner out of the table. Wagner are offensive units; they're not defensive units. So. I think that given that, given the slow pace of the Ukrainian counteroffensive and the fact that Ukrainian cities are being pummeled uh, relentlessly uh, by not just by uh, Russian potential cluster munitions use, but also, of course, the daily bombardments of of strikes right, and of uh, Iranian drones, as you just mentioned before. And uh, I think that this is just something that gives Ukraine another small step towards leveling the playing field. Of course, it's not what the Ukrainians really want, which is uh, aviation and F-16s and ATACAMs, long-range missiles. So whether Russia can jam those like the way they done with HIMARS, that's a question. But jets are what they really want. But this is just another thing that could, could help them in a small way at this uh, difficult time in their counteroffensive.
1: Yeah. Well, um, thinking a little bit about the future, um, the conclusion of your book, uh, it is subtitled Russia in 2023 a year of implosion with a question mark? Um, Explain that.
0: So, well, I think that there's many ways in which Russia could implode in 2023. I think that uh, we almost already saw an example of it just uh, on display last month. If the Prigozhin coup had uh, not necessarily succeeded but also not failed, substantial parts of the Rosavardia and the Russian military and Russian regional governors followed the path of Rostov and handed over uh, to support to Prigozhin, and people like Seroviki worked on his side, we could have been seeing something resembling what we're seeing play out in Sudan right now, a clash between the national army and a powerful paramilitary force, a civil war occurring in the face of an interstate war. And that would have been something that could have led to a complete destabilization of Russia and its power, and its power circles. And the you know, threat of ultranationalists inside Russia to the Kremlin as the war continues to go badly is certainly something that is, uh, is a major concern. We're seeing the Russian economy hold up uh, much more resiliently than expected, uh, in part because they've, they've been able to sanctions prove themselves over the past decade. They've been able to redirect a lot of the raw material supplies to the collective non-West. They've uh, also been able to get semiconductors and other tech products from countries like China, Turkey, the UAE. But this is when I was saying implosion, I was thinking about a, a scenario where a perfect storm happens. The uh, economic sanctions really start beginning to bite stronger than before. And Russia engages in reckless moves like potentially uh, attacking its nuclear plant or uh, b- b- blocking the black sea grain deal, as they've already done, or even experiments with tactical nuclear weapons, at least to the world, isolating them. And then flashes break out internally between the ultra nationalists who are dissatisfied with the Russian military and the Russian military. And you see some kind of a mix of, uh, of, a civil, of this uh, Soviet civil war, 1917 and the 1990s economic crash all happen at once. And, uh, that potentially leads to the uh, worst case scenario for Russia a destabilization of central authority, a failed state, the regions breaking off. I mean, so I don't think that's a likely scenario, but I just wanted to raise the question in the specter because it's ironic that Russia thought, wanted to destroy Ukraine, and wanted to dis- disunite Ukraine, to wipe it off the map, and create a failed state in Ukraine, even if it didn't succeed militarily. And all it's done after one year of war, a year and a half of war, is risk creating a failed state in Russia. It's more likely there's going to be a failed state and chaos in Russia. And there is to see Ukraine being wiped off, which is an irony from Putin's perspective.
1: Well, I know you said it's not likely, but if you were to put a percentage on it, um, if you can, like what, 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 what is the percentage likeliness that Russia sees an implosion in twenty twenty three? You think
0: along the lines that I was just describing, with many of those facets, probably between five and ten percent. So I would rate it okay. relatively low. I think that the swift uh, defeat of the Prigozhin coup. Uh, and Prigozhin uh, returning to, to, to Belarus uh, will probably discourage uh, somebody else from uh, doing that in the very near future, but not in the longer term future, because Putin was also exposed to being internationally isolated. I mean, uh, only Cuba, North Korea, and Venezuela came out in support of them, and all three of those came out in support of them after Prigozhin went to Belarus. China said nothing. Iran didn't take his side. There were, there were lots of weaknesses. And also, Uh, Even though many people were making bland statements for unity, there certainly was not a pro-Putin mobilization. It's the apathy that the Russian public and Russian propaganda puts on the Russian people to ignore war crimes and to ignore the war in Ukraine. That same kind of apathy now seems to be extending to Putin's leadership. There isn't the kind of mobilization like we saw against the Orange Revolution pro-Putin nationalism coming from groups like Nashi and young people and students kind of joining that. That doesn't exist anymore. So, I think that Putin has got serious vulnerabilities to an internal challenge, and there are a lot of uh, potential, given depending on Russia's actions, for Russia to become more isolated and to have economic shocks. But I also think that, uh, that with the progression mutiny being diffused, with the non West largely standing behind Russia in some way, shape, or form, he, he's probably the worst case scenario is most likely going to be averted.
1: Well, you mentioned um, the. Um, the, the grain embargo. Yeah. And so like this week, as, as we're recording, um, you, you, Russia has has put a blockade on Ukraine. I believe Ukraine, in response, put a, a naval blockade on, on Russia. Um, how, how significant uh, is what's developing the naval situation? Um, how significant is that right now?
0: So the Bossy Grain Deals uh, collapse is something that was won by Pregosian who was wanted by other hardliners who don't want any kind of diplomacy with Ukraine, and also who believe that uh, the grain and fertilizer from Russia was being sanctioned or was not being allowed to enter international markets in a free and fair way. So they saw the deal as inequitable and unjust. So I think from a lot of nationalists at home will greet this as a positive and belated move that was necessary to, to undertake. I think that was the primary impetus behind Putin's... Uh, Uh, decision to suspend the grain deal this time instead of just doing the 60-day extension and expressing dissatisfaction like he was doing the previous few times. Also, the uh, Ukrainian strike on the Crimean Bridge, which happened right at the same time, and uh, more Ukrainian drone strikes on Crimea itself gave Russia uh, a segue to and a pretext to leave because it was saying that Ukraine was threatening Black Sea shipping and Black Sea security and especially militarizing the Black Sea. So we have to treat all uh, goods, whether they be grain uh, as, as, as the equivalent of arms caches, or the equivalent of military components coming out, so that those uh, incidents also gave Putin a way out. And finally, I think the other thing that gave Putin a way out was the recent decline in relations between Russia and Turkey. Uh, Russia and uh, Turkey are releasing the Azov battalion members uh, who were traded from Medvedchuk ahead of schedule. They're supposed to stay in Turkey till the end of the war. They were released to to return. Uh, Turkey is supporting uh, the Ukraine's fast track accession to NATO, and Turkey is do to expand drone and even uh, to some extent greenlighting green light the cluster munition shipments to Ukraine, as well as Turkey's refusal to withdraw from northern Syria, which was a command from Assad. All these things happening at once, and the anti-Turkish uh, campaign that was uh, being fired up in the Russian media, where basically they were trying to talk about how Turkey is, is in a position of weakness, that Erdogan is like a like uh, needed need Putin's help in 2016 after the coup, because he was alienated from the West. Those kind of things. Uh, I think that given the fact that Turkey was the key guarantor of this and the relationship is under strain right now, I think uh, Vladimir Putin also felt it would be okay to uh, to get out and to leave. The question is what comes next? Obviously, leaving the grain deal in the long term is going to be bad for Russia's image in the global south, even if African leaders are keeping mysteriously quiet about this. And uh, having the image of starving the world is certainly not a good one when you're dependent on the global south. So that's something that needs to get resolved. Also, Russia doesn't have the ability to blockade uh, the uh, Black Sea anymore. I mean, they've lost the Moscow, and also they, too many of their naval carriers are vulnerable to Ukrainian Neptune missiles, as well as Western-made anti-ship missiles that have come in since the Moscow sinking. So I think that uh, Russia lacks that. Russia's only recourse right now is to stall inspections wherever the grain is still coming out, and also to uh, bomb and attack Ukrainian port infrastructure with Shahed drones and with uh, the, yeah, and also with, the, with with missile, cruise missiles and other strikes. And we're seeing that happening in Odessa on a day-to-day basis. So I think the fastest way to get Russia back into the grain deal is to uh, make sure that the air defense systems in Kiev are working extremely well, and they're limiting major attacks on the capital. Uh, getting those kind of air defense systems or air defense equipment somehow being moved to Odessa right now, to Ukraine's grain ports, and securing them would probably be the fastest way for Russia to uh, recognize that its war... On grain shipments is going to do more harm than good, and uh, it has to go there. Or less likely, if African leaders just simply don't turn out next week at the summit, or there's some kind of uh, friction about this, then maybe he might want to go back to the drawing board. Or some kind of hidden pressure from China, which was also sustaining to lose from this disruption in grain, and is seeing food price inflation. That's concerning to it. India is also seeing the same kind of thing, so maybe pressure from China and India might be what moves it chip.
1: So you would say it's pretty unlikely that Russian ships start sinking merchant vessels coming out of Ukraine carrying grain shipments?
0: It's possible that they could uh, try to do that and do so in a, in a relatively deniable fashion. But by, by claiming that they there were arms shipments and then the type of stuff coming through from there, creating a bit of a crisis, creating an escalation, I think that I would not rule that out. But I think that you know it's, it's not the most likely outcome. Because Russia is having strains in relations with Turkey, but Turkey is also not sanctioning Russia as the only NATO country that's really not sanctioning Russia and it's allowing Russian energy to reach Europe and it's allowing Russia to, to get access to technology. Many Russian nationals and tech companies have relocated there to do business. So I don't think they really want to push the, the, the boundaries of their relations with Turkey from a period of tension into a full-blown crisis. So I don't think that they're going to necessarily engage in measures like that, but also then rejoining the Green Deal as it was and complying with it uh, in, in the full spirit uh, of how it was intended, I think is also uh, unlikely to. So it's going to be an well, intense uh, back and forth here, whether sure. we wait and see what happens.
1: Well, Samuel, this has been a, a, a terrific interview. Um, you've, you've given such thoughtful answers to, to my questions. Um, one last question've I've got from you for you here is what are you hoping that readers uh, take away from your book?
0: Well, I'm thinking that people should really place the Ukraine war into its global context. I think that the point that you made at the very start, I think was uh, very important. It's important to recognize that this war in Ukraine is not just about uh, poking the th- the nose of the West or poking the nose of NATO or trying to just recapture the Soviet Union for the sake of recapturing it. It's also about recreating an identity inside Russia that's conservative and liberal. It's about uniting the Russian people. And it's about uh, presenting Russia as uh, some kind of a vanguard inside the multipolar world order. So it's about Russia's vision of a world order, Russia's uh, aversion to liberal democracy and willingness to resist it, and Russia's desire to construct an identity at home. The origins of this war are not based on external provocations. They're based on uh, how Vladimir Putin sees his regime's uh, stability and legitimacy, and also uh, forces uh, from within, nationalist forces and uh, illiberal forces that are coming from within. So we should always look inside Russia to understand what Russia's going to do next, because that's the best indicator, and not to be so focused on the external triggers and the external stimuli.
1: Oh, wonderful. Well, um, if folks want to stay in touch with your work, if they want to follow what you're doing, are you on social media? How can people stay in touch with what you're doing?
0: Sure. The main place where I post everything uh, almost uh, all ubiquitously is on Twitter, at SamRamity2. And I've got over 200,000 followers there. I've got all my interviews, my uh, links to my publications there on a regular basis. So just uh, keep an eye. As well as my day-to-day thoughts on what's happening with, uh, with events in Russia and Ukraine. Also, further afield. I stretch out a pretty wide net there.
1: Would you say a Twitter implosion is more likely than a Russia implosion?
0: Uh, sadly, I think uh, yes. Yeah, right now, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, a, you wonder what he's gonna come up with next, right? Eh? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, well, uh, Samuel Ramini, uh Putin's war on Ukraine, Russia's campaign for a global counter-revolution. Uh, go buy a copy, go check it out from your library. Um, some really great information in here. And Samuel, again, thank you so much for your time.
0: Pleasure. Thank you so much, AJ.